This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. You are looking bright and cheerful this morning. If I wasn't awake and inspired before I came to GYC, I certainly am now. I think we've got the best class in this place, I'll tell you. So thank you for coming again. We're looking forward to another exciting class. We, yesterday, remember, we started talking about the postmodern mind and uh, how the postmodern mind thinks, and we pointed out that the heart cry of the postmodern mind is for relationships, and that when you look at the ministry of Jesus, he swept aside differences, developed interpersonal relationships with people, and, uh, and that was a bridge to share the gospel. And that's exactly what God gives us the opportunity to do as we work in the ministry of Christ. And you remember yesterday we pointed out that where technology can be a benefit to the church and to our witness for Christ, it also can be a liability. The average teenage girl does a hundred texts a day. How many of the guys do? You got it. You're good. They do 50. And uh, you know, You've often seen people sitting in a restaurant and they sit across from one another and one is texting and the other is texting and there's that little not much dialogue taking place between them. And so at an, at an age that people become more commodities, you and I have an opportunity to witness for the love of Jesus to them. And so we talked about how the postmodern mind thinks yesterday. We looked at the eight characteristics of the postmodern mind. We looked at the fact that the Adventist message was specifically designed by God to reach people in this generation. Today, we're going to say, how do you make those bridges between casual conversations and the beginning of discussions on biblical themes? How do you really move people under the guidance of the Holy Spirit from relationship to Bible study. Friendship is good, but you and I long to make friends for eternity, right? You can have a lot of friends, but if you don't see those friends in heaven, that friendship is very short-lived. So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus, and thank you for his incredible love and his marvelous grace. I pray that you'd help us to know how to make not only friends for this life, and not only develop relationship for relationship's sake, but to develop friends for eternity. In Christ's name, amen. A number of years ago, I was holding an evangelistic meeting in one of the great eastern cities in America, and I always really try to get close to the pastors that I'm holding evangelistic meetings when I'm holding evangelistic meetings in that city, and, and we become lifelong friends with many pastors throughout America and the world. And as I met with the pastor and his wife, the pastor said to me, now, Pastor Mark, I want to tell you that my wife is not going to be able to come to the evangelistic meetings. And I said, well, why not? And he said, you know, because our son, who is a teenager, has become quite um, addicted to drugs. And if my wife comes to the evangelistic meeting, our son will probably have a drug party at the house. The boy had gone through Adventist elementary school. And when he was in the eighth grade, he began smoking pot. And by the time he was the first, second year of uh, academy, he was involved in alcohol and a variety of other kinds of drugs. One of the most embarrassing things that ever happened in that pastor's life was the fact that the, Advent that the police uh, invaded the Adventist pastor's home and uh, arrested a number of young people that were involved in the drug culture, and that was a major headline in the newspaper. Now, before you become too judgmental of the pastor and his wife and say, what did they do wrong with their kids, um, let me remind you that there are times you can have a perfect environment and uh, at, kids have to make their own choices. Um, what did God do wrong when he created Lucifer? What was the problem in the environment in heaven? Uh, you know, God must have been a really a terrible parent because uh, Lucifer really messed up, and if it wasn't for God, we wouldn't be in this mess. What kind of reasoning is that, huh? You see, once you give the power of choice, you can provide an ideal environment, and that can lead people to make the right choice and give them more possibilities, but the choice is still theirs, correct? What about Eden? 
Was Eden really messed up? It was a perfect environment. See, God gave the power of choice well knowing that Adam and Eve may make the wrong choice. And the problem wasn't the environment. The problem wasn't with God. The problem was that once you give freedom of choice, now the opposite of that is, let's suppose you don't give freedom of choice. If you take away the ability to choose, you take away the opportunity to love. Because love can never be forced and never can be coerced. So if God was going to create beings in his image with the capacity to love, he had to give them the capacity to choose. And if you take away the capacity to love, you take away the opportunity to live life to the fullest and be fully happy, and you become mere automaton and a mere robot. So a loving God, creating beings in his image, created them in the capacity to love, knowing that in doing that it would bring him pain. So God was willing to go through pain because of the poor choices and sinful choices of his creatures, knowing that he would then, from eternity, set in motion the plan of salvation and redemption to preserve that choice through the ceaseless ages of eternity. And so, as I was talking to this Adventist pastor, he said, you know, I'm praying all night for my son. Many times I pray till three or four in the morning. We're doing everything we can to help him, but we just don't know what to do. And it was a real tragic time for them. I often prayed with them. We often wept together over that boy. And I left that city. We tried to bond with the boy and uh, weren't very, very successful at all. I was in another city, and one night I was preaching. And as I looked out over this large auditorium, four or 500 people, I saw way in the back row this young man. Long hair, eyes sunk deeply in his head, sallow complexion. He had really wasted himself largely in the drug culture and um, got into drinking, and I, I knew that uh, he was really struggling. He was sitting there with a young woman who he was living with but not married to, and because we had become friends and because I knew his parents, he had heard that I was in the city and thought he'd just drop by to say hello. He didn't have very much spiritual inclination at all. And at the end of the meeting, I had a lot of people around me that I was talking to, and I noticed him begin to walk up the aisle. And his girlfriend was holding his hand, and she whispered something to him, and I, I'm not sure what she said, but I thought she said something like, you know, let's get out of here. Let's not go see that guy. And she began to pull in the opposite direction. And he let go of her hand, and she walked out, and he came up. And I knew, I said, Lord, I have only a very, very short time with this young man, probably five minutes at most. Give me the words to say. And you know, one of the things that I have learned through my life in ministry after these 45 years is that if you plant a seed of the Word of God in somebody's mind, the Holy Spirit will nurture that seed and only in eternity will we see the effectiveness of that. Now, sometimes God lets us see it now to encourage us with all the times that we don't see it. And so as this young man came, and there is something incredibly powerful about the Word of God. As this young man came, he stood by me, and I, I left the people that I was talking to, and I went over, and I just put my arm around his shoulder, and I, I called him by name, and I said, you know, you may be thinking, and, and I knew I didn't have much time, and I knew I had to go right for the heart, but I needed to be gentle, and I, 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 so I said to him, you know, you may be thinking that I've ruined my life. You've dropped out of high school. You may be thinking there's no future for me. You don't have a job. You're not working. You may be thinking, you know, I feel discouraged a lot. I use drugs to self-medicate. I use alcohol to self-medicate because I'm so discouraged. But I said, can I just share with you one thing, just one thing that may be helpful to you? So he said, sure. So I said, Take, I said let me share with you something in the book of Joel. And I actually took my Bible, which I often do with adults and young people, and I said, look, I want to read you something, but I, I want you to see it. Let's go to Joel, the second chapter. And if you have your Bible, turn to it. So there, in a five-minute visit, 
after an evangelistic meeting, talking to a young man who was an Adventist pastor's boy who had really left the Adventist church and was involved in lifestyle habits that were not in harmony with God's will by any way. I said to him, let me read you a Bible passage that I believe is going to encourage your heart and show potential for the future. Joel 2, verse 25. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people will never be put to shame. I said, now let me rephrase that. I will restore to you the years that drug has eaten, drugs have eaten, that alcohol has destroyed, that paranoia has destroyed, that fear has destroyed, that depression has destroyed. I'll restore to you the years. This great army that, that tried to destroy you of drugs and alcohol and fear and depression. You are one day going to eat in plenty, verse 26. One day your heart will be satisfied. One day you'll be praising the name of the Lord your God. One day you're going to be giving a testimony for the Lord who's done so wondrously for you. Then I said to him, how does God restore the years? You can't go back and be 13 years old again and live from 13 to 18 or 13 to 19. How does God restore the years? He gives you such joy in the future and gives you such purpose and meaning in life that the past devastation is behind you. And you have such a new life in Christ that that past devastation no longer grips you. Remember one thing, I'll restore the years. Then we prayed and he left. About a year later, I met him again. And he said, Pastor Mark, all this last year, that text just kept coming back to my mind. I'll restore the years. I'll restore the years. I'll restore the years. He is the God that restores the years. There may be some scars. There may be some disappointments. But God is a marvelous God who can restore the years. This young man went out and got his GED, which is his high school equivalency. He had dropped out of high school. Then the Lord led him to study theology at Andrews University. He went on and got an undergraduate degree in theology. Then he went on and got a Master of Divinity degree. Now here's a kid who dropped out of high school, but he goes on, gets his high school equivalency, got a college degree, then he got a Master of Divinity degree. Eventually, we hired him when I was a speaker at It Is Written Television to be one of our evangelists. His name is Mark Fox. He tells his story very openly. Some of you know Mark. And God has used him so powerfully, incredibly. But he told me later, one of the things that helped him, many, obviously his parents were praying for him. Obviously, there are a variety of factors. When you develop relationships and show love and caring to others and plant the seed of God's word in their mind, the Holy Spirit nurtures that seed in marvelous ways. Eternity is going to be an incredible place because we're going to meet people that we've shared with. I want to spend time in this session studying with you about the power of God's Word and how to apply it in a variety of settings. Now, why is God's Word so powerful? We'll go to our worksheets shortly, but let's, let's look at them now. Let's look at worksheet number two, the unchanging Word. And we're going to look a little later at ten reasons why God's Word is so eternally powerful. But first, I want to look at the nature of God's Word before we go to the worksheet. So just keep your worksheets there. We will come to it. But, then, but I want to look at the nature of God's Word. If you have your Bible, not on our worksheets yet, we're going to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Hebrews 4, verse 12. What is the nature of God's Word? And why is God's Word different than any other human writings? Hebrews 4, verse 12. Here we go. The Bible says, The Word of God is living, it might say quick in the King James Version. The Word of God is living, it's alive, and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword. Now notice, next the Bible lists the four different qualities of life. Piercing even to the division of soul, that's your spiritual life. Spirit, that's your mental life, your thoughts. Joints and marrow, that's your physical life. Discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The intents of the heart is your emotional life. So here... Scripture says that the Bible is living. 
It's alive. And it impacts every area of our physical, mental, emotional lives, in our spiritual lives. Now notice it says the word of God is quick or living. Other books may be enlightening, the Bible is enlightened. Other books may be inspiring, the Bible's inspired. When you share the word of God, it is not a dead word, it's a living word. You share the seed, you put the seed in the soil, and that seed under the right conditions is going to burst forth because it's alive. Now come back to Mark chapter 4. We're studying the nature of God's word. Often you can hold your Bible in your hands and not sense its incredible, powerful nature. Mark the fourth chapter, the 26th verse. Mark 4, verse 26. The kingdom of God, Mark 4, verse 26, and he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Now, what's the seed? The seed is what? The word of God. Verse 27, should sleep by night, rise by day. The seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. We, we sow the seed and God grows the seed. Can you say that with me? We sow the seed and God does what? grow the seed. We do what? Sow the seed. God grows the seed. And did you see what the text says? You see, God's word is alive. It's living. And we sow it, but we don't, verse 27, we sleep day and night, the seed sprouts up, and we don't know how. I can't tell you the times that I've had evangelistic meetings. And situations have occurred where the word of God lodged in people's hearts. They never made a decision then. But later they've told me, I've made a decision for Christ. You know, it's wonderful to go back to places where you have shared God's word, either in a Bible study with people or you preached. And just last year, Tini and I went back, my wife and I went back to Moscow. And um, we had been there 20 years before. And it was really thrilling because I was preaching in a new church in Moscow. And we have so few churches in that city that uh, church buildings. We have about 13 churches within the city and about 26 within Greater Moscow now. But this particular church was a church that we had raised up after our evangelistic meetings, and they had rented a facility, and they had just built a facility. We own so few churches in Moscow that three congregations, not three services, but three separate congregations met in that one building. But we had baptized in our meetings 20 years before two of the pastors of those three congregations. Well, anyway, when I, when I went to Moscow over 20 years ago now, eventually we had held meetings in Polanyi University and then in the Kremlin and then in the Olympic Stadium. Well, the Olympic Stadium was a really a tough meeting for me. It was my third meeting in Moscow. We had about 18,000 people coming out at night. We had 100 people, uh, medical people with us, and we took 18,000 blood samples. And so we, we were really having a fabulous meeting. But the opening night of our meetings in the Olympic Stadium, when I walked onto the stage, as the tradition of these Russian women was, they got up, came forward with flowers in their hand. They were giving me flowers because many of them had been baptized before our evangelistic meetings. And so uh, they had been baptized in the last two years that we were holding meetings in Moscow in 91 and 92, but by now we're at 93 in the Olympic Stadium. As I reached over to pick up a bouquet of flowers from one of these women, I should have known the flowers were all dead and withered. And as I reached over to pick them up, she grabbed the microphone out of my hand. I didn't know who the woman was at this time. Now, this was the opening night. I hadn't spoken a word of the evangelistic meetings. Her name was Mary David Christ, her taken name, her given name. You can Google her on the internet. But anyway, she spent a lot of time in Russian prison. Here's the story with this woman. She took the name Mary because she believed she was the mother of the new Messiah, Christ. That she was pregnant but, and she would have a David who would be the new king of the new messianic kingdom. She believed that her followers were called the White Knights. And the, she had 18 to 22,000 young people. 
that were following her, mostly young men, they believed that they were good angels reincarnated, I mean, it was way out, sent from heaven to battle the forces of evil and that I was the epitome of the forces of evil. That was their understanding. So, when she grabbed the microphone out of my hand, opening night of evangelistic meetings, she said, this man is the Antichrist, attack! Her white knights jumped up out of the audience and rushed forward. Now, that was kind of interesting. I mean, it was really an interesting experience, you know. Here was my advantage, though. I had baptized many KGB officers and Russian army officers who did not forget their skills. So when they saw their old pastor being attacked, they jumped up and did what KGB and army officers do, and I was well taken care of. We went to the Russian police, and we said to the Russian police, look, can you do something for us? They said, this is a free country now. No, you've rented the auditorium. If these people jump up, it's up to you to handle it. But we will deputize your ushers. It was the only time the police ever deputized our ushers. We found a stinky Russian toilet in the bowels, that's a good illustration, a stinky Russian toilet in the bowels, of the, uh, of the Olympic Stadium. And we would capture these kids every night. I mean, some would be crawling down the aisles. I mean, we'd have music, no problem. We'd have a health talk, no problem. But then I'd get up to speak and I'd see three of them sneaking down the aisle over here and another five of them over here. And sometime they'd make a ruckus way in the back and we took all the chairs off the stage. But for 12 or 14 straight nights, they would come and rush forward and do their thing and we'd drag them out kicking and screaming, lock them in an old stinky Russian toilet and then let them go. But anyway, 20 years ago that happened. So I was back in Moscow just last year and a young man in his 30s said to me, do you remember me? Now that's an, always an interesting question for me. Do you remember me? I'm thinking, I mean, 18,000 people are coming to me, do I remember you? So he said, do you remember me? I said, well, remind me. He said, I'm glad you didn't remember me. I said, well, now that must be a story. He said, do you remember the meetings in Moscow? And I said, how, in, the, in the university, do you remember what used to happen to you? I said, how could I ever forget that? He said, I was up in the balcony and I was the one throwing stones at you. He said, you remember those little pebbles you had to dodge so quickly? You know, some people ask me, why do you move this way? Why do you move I'm used to dodging pebbles. So anyway, he said, I was up in the balcony and I was the one throwing pebbles at you. But he said, you know what happened? After you left, I began to think. The word of God began working in my heart. It began working in my life. And he said, Jesus Christ changed me. And he said, I'm new. And he said, oh yeah, one thing. When you preach now, I'm not going to throw any more pebbles at you. <laughs> you sow the seed. We sow the seed. And what does God do? God grows the seed. Because the word of God is what? It's alive. It's alive. Now, take your Bible. Go to Psalm 33, verse 6 and 9. There is incredible power in the word of God. Don't let all this talk coming from some quarters about the postmodern mind discourage you. Deep within the postmodern heart there is an argument for, there is a longing for reality. God moves in people's heart. He opens their mind. The Holy Spirit strives in their life. And when you share the Word of God, what methods can change? But I will tell you this. Whatever method bypasses the sharing of the Word of God is not the method for this generation. The Word of God is alive. We may not start by giving a person a Bible study, but we're certainly going to end there, right? There has to become some point when you develop a friendship, some point where you develop a relationship, some point where you begin to share eternal principles of the Word of God. Psalm 33, verse 6 and verse 9. Psalm 33, verse 6 and 9. Look, Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Verse 9. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Now notice what it says. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. God spoke, and the creative word that came out of God's mouth carried with it such energy 
that God's word created that which God declared. Now, my word may be a declarative word. I can say, for example, this is a chair, right? I can declare what is. This is a what? Chair. God can say, this is a chair. And the words out of God's mouth carry with them such creative energy that God creates that which he declares. God can say, that's the sun. I can point at where the sun is. But when there is no sun, God can say that's the sun, and the creative energy coming out of his mouth creates a sun. What never was becomes when God says it is, because that which God's word declares, God creates. What is not becomes what is when God declares it to be, because God is a creative God. Now I want you to apply that to the word of God. By the word of God were the heavens made. Now here's a statement. You don't have it in your notes. You want to write this one down. It's powerful. Education, page 126. The creative energy that called the worlds into existence is in the word of God. Now meditate upon that statement. Too often we rush by things. The creative energy that called worlds into existence is in the word of God. God spoke and the sun, moon, and stars appeared. God spoke and and water appeared. God spoke and he carpeted the earth with living green. God spoke and fruit trees appeared and birds appeared. God spoke and that appeared. Now, think of the power in God's word to create a sun. Think of the power in God's word to create a moon. I mean, that's pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? But what does this say? Quote it with me, please. The creative energy, together, the creative energy that called worlds into existence is where? in the Word of God together. The creative energy that called worlds into existence is in the Word of God. Once more, the creative energy that called worlds into existence is in the Word of God. Now listen, this Word imparts power, it begets life. Every command is a promise, accepted by the will, received into the soul. It brings with it the life of the infinite one. It transforms the nature and recreates the soul in the image of God. When we share the word of God with others, God's word is a creative word. It begins powerfully working in their life to transform them. Now let me illustrate that for you. You know the promise that you and I will quote often to people that says, if we forgive our sins, he's faithful and just. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive them. You know that promise, right? Where do you find that in the Bible? 1 John 1, 9. Now, I want you to think about that in the light of creation, okay? And I want you to think about the text in a new way. Once you begin thinking about text this way, it's life transformational. When God says in his word, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive them. That does not simply mean that there's a legislative fiat in heaven where Jesus steps forth and says, this one is one of mine. Through my blood, they are forgiven and free from guilt and condemnation. It does mean that. It does mean that but it means much more. Not only does something take place in heaven where Christ's blood atones for our sin, but when we grasp that promise personally, Christ creates within us forgiveness in the place of condemnation. He creates within us joy in the place of sorrow. He creates within us peace rather than guilt. Grasping the promises of God by faith, recreation takes place inside of us. So when I grasp the promise that says, as many as received him, John 1 verse 12, he gave them the power to become the sons of God. That is not only a legal transaction in heaven where I pass from death to life, but recreation takes place in me. God is constantly recreating us into his image through the powerful promises of God's word. So when you store, that's why David says in Psalm 119, remember David says this, thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not do what? Sin against me. 
Because as I hide God's word in my heart, it is a living word. It's a creative word. It's a powerful word. And it begins to work in me, just like seed planted in soil. And it begins through its living power to transform me from within side. If you were the devil and you knew that, what would you do? You'd make people so busy that they'd have little time to study God's word because God's word is living and it's life transformational. You would get Christians reading every other book except the inspired writings and except God's word. You would distract them as much as you can because God's word is so incredibly powerful. It is life transformational. You know, there is a statement in the writings of Ellen White that has really impressed me about this. You see, the life-giving promises and principles of God's word carry with them the power to do what they declare. And in Ministry of Healing, here's another one you want to to write down, note. Ministry of Healing, page 122. So with all the promises, Ministry of Healing 122, so with all the promises of God's word, in them he's speaking to us individually, speaking as directly as if we could listen to his voice. What if you could be transported 2,000 years ago back to the days that Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount? Wouldn't that be pretty incredible? If you knew that there was a GYC held in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, and that Jesus was going to be speaking, and he was going to give the essence of life, the attitudes of being in the Sermon on the Mount, would you go? I mean, if I could hear Jesus speak individually, I mean, I would go anywhere, wouldn't you? But look, the promises of God's word, in them Christ is speaking to us individually, speaking as directly as if we could listen to his voice. It is in these promises that Christ communicates to us his grace and power. They, the promises of God, are leaves from the tree, which is for the healing of the nations. Wow. Received, assimilated, they are to be the strength of character, the inspiration and sustenance of the life. Nothing else can have such healing power. The word of God is healing power. You receive it, there's a new creation within. Nothing beside can impart the courage and faith which give vital energy to the whole being. Did you get that? God took the tree of life from earth to heaven after Adam and Eve's sin. But the tree of life that's growing in the holy city there in heaven, the branches of that tree lean over the walls and you and I can pick the leaves of the tree of life and eat it today. That's what Ellen White says. She says the promises of God's word are like the leaves of the tree of life that bring life to our whole being. So as you and I share God's word, this incredibly powerful God's word, we will see life-changing experiences in the heart and minds of others. And the postmodern secular mind is open for the word of God. You know, after I was preaching in Moscow, I received the invitation to come out and speak in a place called Pushina. Now, in the former Soviet Union, different cities were dedicated to different industrial or military activities. For example, there was a city that they would just make military rifles. That's all they did in that city. Another city that they would make bus engines. That's all. Another city that just make tires. Pushina was a fascinating city. It was a city of chemical and biological scientists that did experimentation with chemical and biological warfare. The only people that could live in that city were the scientists and their families. This city was one of 50 secret Russian cities that were not even listed on the map. Even Russian citizens couldn't go in. Shortly after the fall of communism, I was invited to come to this city for three nights to speak to the Russian scientists, and they gave me three topics. Number one, is the Bible viable? Number two, is Jesus real? And number three, is there any hope for the world in the future? I did not know what I was going to experience, and I came to a large cultural center in that city. And I walked into the cultural center, and there were a thousand Russian scientists and their families. Now, I wasn't concerned about the lecture, but here's what I was really concerned about. They said, here's the format. You speak for an hour, and then the Russian scientists ask you questions for an hour. I was really concerned about the questions. I was really concerned about that, because I know that these were the brightest 
secular atheistic minds, and I knew that they knew things about carbon dating and geology and biology and chemistry and science that I had no clue about. When I walked into the auditorium, I mean, they were sitting there like this. I mean, who in the world is this Christian American that's coming? And I looked the crowd over and I said, man, this is not a real friendly crowd. I've got to warm this crowd up a little bit. So I said to them, when I walked on, I said, you know, before I begin to speak, let me tell you a story about an American university and some American scientists. I said, I don't know if the story is true or not, but it's kind of interesting and you'll enjoy it and you get a laugh on the Americans. So that kind of warmed them up a little bit. And I said, you know, there was this American scientist and he would go from university to university to university, give lectures on chemistry and, uh, and physics. And he gave the same lecture every time, every single time. And he lectured and lectured, you know, to these universities and he had the same driver. And one day he had lectured four times at different major universities in America. And he was going to his fifth lecture that night and this prestigious scientist went there and he had his lecture in the black folder and as they were pulling up to the university, he said to his driver, I'm so exhausted, I don't even know if I can give this lecture tonight. And the driver said, don't worry about it, look, we'll pull into a little rest area here, you put my black hat on, my black suit on, my black pants, you drive up. I have heard you, professor, give this thing about 25 times. All I need to do is read the lecture, that's all. I'll just read the thing, they'll all clap and we'll get out of there. So they switched. The professor put on the little black hat, he put on his little black suit, and he put on his little black pants, and drove up to the uh, university with the uh, driver in the back seat with his lecture in his hand. And so as they got out of the car, they were welcomed, and the uh, professor went and sat in the back and slept half through the lecture, and the uh, driver got up, dressed in the suit of the professor, and gave the lecture. And things initially went just really, really well, really, really well. And at the end of the lecture, there was a standing ovation. Then the host said, we want to do something different tonight. Now's the question and answer period. <laughs> One of the chemistry department teachers got up and asked the driver a question. And the driver didn't even understand the question. He couldn't even understand the language. He had no clue what was going on. And he simply smiled and said this, you know, I don't answer simple questions. I just take the complicated ones. In fact, that one is so simple, I'm gonna let my driver take it. <laughs> That's what I told those Russian scientists. I said, you know, you guys, if you have any questions, I'm gonna let my driver take it. I lectured to them for three nights. Now, here is the amazing thing. Here's the amazing thing. Here are the top brains in the world. Russian scientists who spend all their life working on biological warfare and chemical warfare and so forth. I did not get one question on carbon-14. I did not get one question on geology. Here's the questions I got. Questions like, how do you find purpose in life? Questions like, if God is so good, why is the world so bad? Questions about, what about human suffering? Why do we have so much suffering in the world? questions about what is prayer and how do you pray. The questions that I got from the top brains of the Russian scientists were the same questions that you will get when you go door to door in Orlando this afternoon. They are the same questions that I got in poverty-stricken homes in the south side of Chicago when I was knocking on doors there. The same questions. Why? And so at the end of three nights, I was standing, and I will never forget, I was standing just like here in front of the platform with these Russian scientists, and I said to them, I said, you know, you guys have kind of uh, mystified me. They said, well, Pastor, what do you mean? I said, you know, I thought I'd get questions on creation evolution. I thought I'd get questions on carbon-14. I thought I'd get questions on, you know, that I couldn't answer. And you asked me basic questions of the human heart. Why? And one of the top Russian scientists said this to me. He said, Pastor Finley, we have tried atheism, and we know it doesn't work. The average Russian woman has had seven abortions by the time she's 45. Suicide in the former Soviet Union was at an all-time high. Russian men, one in every five Russian men were alcoholics during those times. You see, we tried atheism. We know it doesn't work. The only thing we want to know is, is the Bible a viable alternative for us?
God has placed within every heart the desire to know His Word. As young Adventist Christians, you do not need to be intimidated by this generation. Sharing the principles of God's Word, knowing Christ in your own life, knowing that Jesus radically has changed you, knowing that Jesus has given to us the answers that thinking people are looking for in this generation as you develop relationships with students in that university, as you share God's Word with others, kindly, gently, lovingly, as you meet needs and plant the seed of Scripture. It is amazing what God will do. It's not our Word that changes people, it's God's Word. It's God's Word. And God's Word is alive, it's living, you see. You may be ignorant, but, but God is all wise. And as you share the deep principles of His Word, that's what this generation is looking for. Now let's go to our study sheets and look at 10 incredible reasons why God's Word is so amazingly powerful. 10 reasons why God's Word is so incredibly life-changing. First, notice first, number one, you see these 10 reasons. Here's why God's Word is so powerful. First, God's Word is divinely inspired. This is not a human word, it's an inspired word. Okay, we need to look at five reasons. Somebody says to you, you're talking to a friend, how do you know God's Word's inspired? Okay? Very short. You've got to be short. We've got to give short answers. See, here's when you answer questions, anybody can take something simple and make it complicated. It takes a wise person to take something complicated and make it simple. Okay? So, I say to you, let's suppose I am a university student. You and I get to talk about religion and faith and and you've built a relationship with me over the years and you've been my lab partner in biology and you've been giving me some help because I'm a little bit slow and uh, you, you and I have been getting as partners A's and most of the time you've been getting the A pluses and I've been getting the C pluses but your grade pulls me up and so I really appreciate you like everything you see and uh, so you and I are talking after lab one day and and uh, you say to me, man, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity to work with you. I say, yeah, you know, it's really been, been kind of fun. And you say, you know, in class, it's kind of interesting how um, everything has a design, and it's just really interesting. You know, you study chemistry, you study bio biology, it really has a, it kind of an interesting design. And, and, you know, that's one of the reasons I'm a Christian, because I, I see this design stuff. And uh, then I respond, here's my response, yeah, but, yeah, I mean, I mean, Christians believe that book, the Bible, but I mean, you think of all the killing, all the murders, and I mean, it's in the Bible, and that's kind of a book of myths and fables, and you think of all the oppression that's done in the name of Christianity. I mean, you actually believe the Bible's inspired? Why would you ever do that? I mean, it's just like the Bagda Vita, or just like the Koran, or just like other books. Okay, your response. What's the evidence for you personally that the Bible's inspired? Okay, short answers. Yes. It's changed your life, okay? So you say to the student, you know, I really appreciate what you've said, and there are many that have that idea. So you don't agree with the idea, okay? So your response is, I really appreciate what you've said. Many, many may think that way, but may I share with you something? See, the postmodern mind does not want to be told, this is truth, but they will listen to an open heart, something that means something to you. May I share with you, one of the reasons I believe the Bible is inspired is because of the fact that it really has made a tremendous impact on me. It's really inspired me. You know, before I started studying the Bible, I, um, I had a lot of lack of purpose, a lot of direct, lack of direction in my life, but the Bible has really changed me. So you spend a little time. Okay, so one evidence of the inspiration of the Bible is the life transformation. So I come back and I ask you a question, and my question then is, well, is the Bible, is, is that all you have? I mean, do you have anything better than that? Isn't that rather experiential? Couldn't the person who studies the Bhagavad Gita say the same thing? Couldn't the person that studies the Koran say the same thing, that it's changed my life? What evidence, what solid intellectual evidence that you have that the Bible's inspired? Okay, somebody else. Is this GYC? <laughs> all right, somebody, yes, yes, yes. Prophecies. Which prophecies? Which rulers? 
okay? And where, where do you find that in the Bible? In Daniel, okay. So one evidence is the evidence of what? Prophecy. One evidence. Let me give you two or three or four prophecies that you can have on the top and the tip of your tongue that are very simple. When a person talks to me about the inspiration of the Bible, one of the things that I sometimes will say to them is something like this. You know, one of the fascinating things about Scripture is that's rather unique. Um, and sometimes it's nice to ask a question because it tur it, it put, they want to put you on the defensive. So you want to be, the tone of your voice is going to be incredibly important. The smile on your face is going to be incredibly important. If you come across too um, know-it-all, too arrogant, too proud, you will find barriers of resistance. But sometimes I'll do something like this. I'll say, you know, may I share with you a few things that to me really make a lot of sense that indicate that the Bible's inspired, that it's different. Ha do you know of any specific prophecies in the Koran that were made like 100 years, 200 years, 500 years ahead of time that have come true? They're going to be stumped because they can't find any. Do you know, they'll mention those books, but most of the time they've never read them. Do you know of any prophecies specifically in the Bagda Vita that have come true? They may say, well, you know, Jean Dixon, I mean, she made some prophecies. Edgar Cayce, the sleeping prophet, made some. And say, you know, that's kind of interesting. Jean Dixon, about 15 to 16% at most of her prophecies have come true. She was a psychic back in the 60s. And, um, but, you know, when you look at Bible prophecy, it is really... 100% accurate where it's not conditional. Let me give you just a couple of prophecies that I want you to think about. See, here's what you do. You don't say, this is evidence. You say, let's th think about this. See, you're building relationships. You know, one prophecy that's amazing is a prophecy about Jesus. Jesus actually, you remember where Jesus was born? You try common ground, you see. You remember where Jesus was born? And they'll say, yeah, Bethlehem. It's kind of interesting to notice that 700 years before the birth of Christ, in Micah 5, verse 2, it says that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Of all the hundreds of the little cities in Judah, he'd be born in Bethlehem. Now that's kind of fascinating, isn't it? Now let me give you another fascinating one. There's a guy by the name of Cyrus. Cyrus was the king of the Persians. Don't assume anything. Cyrus was the king of the Persians. He attacked Babylon and let Israel go free. But in Isaiah chapter 44, he was named 150 years before his birth. 150 years before his birth. I mean, that's kind of weird, isn't it? That's, that's kind of amazing stuff. I mean, you get, you get Jesus predicted to be born in Bethlehem. And then, you know, you know the great empires. We studied it together as classmates in world history. And you know, you, you had the great empire of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Before these empires arose, God had named Medo-Persia in Greece. So what I do is, okay, the evidence of personal life, the evidence of prophecy, what other kinds of evidence are there that the Bible is inspired by God? What other kind of evidence? Prophecy? What else? Yes. What is that? Yeah, that's a very key point. I'm going to repeat it. We call it cohesive unity. The Bible was written over a... 1,500-year period of time. It was written by more than 66 authors. It was written by th on three different continents. If you get 66 authors, if you get five people in Orlando talking about politics, how many opinions do you have? No, you have 10 because everybody has two. Okay, so if, you, if you're looking at the inspiration of the Bible, you have people that write over 1,500 years, they're different cultures, different backgrounds, they write about the most difficult subjects, death, heaven, future, but yet there's this commonality among them. That is incredible, just amazingly incredible. Um, so that's a great argument that you can build to them, that, that, that here you have the Bible written by all these different authors and on these difficult subjects and cohesive unity. So we've looked at Life transformation, it's transformed my life. We've looked at prophecy. We've looked at the unity of the Bible. What other issues do you have? Yes? Um, the translation, translation accuracy. Mm -hmm. um, up to, to 
Sure. You can look back at 1947, 1948, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Just to keep in your notes, little simple things. The Dead Sea Scrolls will date back about 150 years before Christ in that area. And um, the Dead Sea Scrolls will be, they contain more than simply biblical material. They were written by a community called the Essenes. And the Essenes, E-S-S-E-N-E-S, -S -E -E the Essenes wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls and they copied the Bible as well as some other history from their nation. The Dead Sea Scrolls only would contain portions of the Old Testament. We have now, we used to think it was every book of the Old Testament except Esther, but we do now have found, we think, fragments of Esther. So, the, so you have, you know, uh, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. So all 39 books would be contained in part, some of them larger part, some of them smaller part, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. You have the entire Isaiah scroll, so we have almost the entire book of Isaiah. What does that mean? What's the significance? Because your point is really a good point. It is really a good point, and to me it's a very strong evidence of the inspiration of the Bible. I can take Isaiah in my current Bible. So I can take the book of Isaiah, and if I could read Hebrew, I could take Isaiah here, translated, you know, from the King James Version, 1600s, and onward translations. And I could look back 1,700 years, so 100 years before Christ, if I were able to read the Isaiah and the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I could say, uh, is there any major difference in copying? And the answer is no. So the same God that inspired the Bible, inspired the Bible copyists, had, have you ever read anything about how the Bible was copied? It's just amazing. Uh, here's a promise, and then I'll tell you a little bit about how the Bible was copied, because I really want your minds to be solid with the inspiration of the Bible. Um, in Psalm 12, verse 6 and 7, tremendous promise from God's Word. Psalm 12, verse 6 and 7, here it is. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. So the same God that inspired the Bible did what? He preserved it in his copying. Now, we have discovered in archaeology some of the copying laws. And, the, and there are different groups that copied. The Essenes copied. Seven years later, there's a group of people called the Maserites, the Maseritic text. They copied Let's suppose I'm a copyist, and let's suppose I'm copying Psalm 119. So my responsibility is to take the old scrolls of, of Psalm and copy Psalm 119. So here's what I do. First thing I do before I start copying is count. I have to count every word. Now, I don't know how many words there are in Psalm 119. Let's say there is 4,000 words, okay? So I count. Then I count to the middle word, precepts. I don't know if that's it, but I'm just using illustration. Precepts. So that's the 2,000th word, middle word. Then I count the letters. Let's suppose there are 12,000 letters, okay? Then I count to the middle letter, E. So before I start copying, I write down there are 4,000 words, there are 2,000 to the middle word, that word is precepts, there are 12,000 some letters, and the middle letter is E. Then I start copying. I copy, copy, copy. Then I read my copy, then I read the original. I say, looks great. Then I gotta count again. Count my copy, 4,000 words, 4,000 words. Count my middle word, precepts. Count my letters, 12,000 some, this is great. Count my middle letter, should be E, C, C, C. The middle letter shouldn't be C, that's not in my original. I must rip it up and start over again. I must rip it up and start over again. God-inspired scribes in primitive remote places to accurately copy God's Word. When you and I take, the, there is no book in literature, and I can make this categorical statement, there is no book in literature that has the historical verification that dates over a hundred years old like this book. There's something unusual in the Bible. Just something incredible in the Bible. Anybody major in biology? Anybody major in biology? Major biology. When did germ theory come in? Germ theory, remember? 
Yeah, okay. So they began working on germ theory, 1718, but it really formulated about 19th century. Before germ theory, we had the miasma theory, the idea that things like cholera were, were airborne and so forth and brought by clouds. Germ theory comes in. But wait a minute. Remember what God told Israel? Burn. When, when, when disease comes through the camp, take the clothing and do what? Burn it. Why? Germ theory. Who was it? Ignis Semmelweis, the Austrian physician, that noticed the high number of birth deaths in his uh, hospital in Austria, and he watched his residents, and his residents would be working on cadavers, and then they would go and deliver a baby after they worked on the cadaver because they had no concept of cleanliness. But what did the Old Testament say? If you handle the dead, be sure to do what? Wash your hands. I mean, we can go over. You talk about the inspiration of the Bible. How did this so-called quote-unquote primitive culture have any understanding of germ theory when it's not discovered for centuries later? I'll tell you something. The book you hold in your hands is divinely inspired by God. We need to make no apology at all. When you delve into the Bible, it is life transformational because it's the very living Word of God. Okay, here we go. We have been on number one. We better go to number two. We got 16 minutes, but we will finish in... No, we got one minute. When are we supposed to finish this class? 9.45, all right. We'll go do the next nine in the next 60 seconds. Here we go. God's Word is divinely inspired. Secondly, God's Word is eternally enduring. It goes to every generation. Thirdly, God's Word is universally applicable. You can apply it in the primitive jungles of Brazil. I've stood on dirt roads with a table before me, with a lantern, and had jungle people gather around me. And I've stood in the halls of presidents of countries and, and with scientists. God's word is universally applicable. It's, it's unique. Four, God's word is completely trustworthy. Where other words may change, and you can't have confidence in them. Are there things that we think are true in medicine today that'll change in 50 years? A hundred years ago, in the 1800s, it was thought that if you inhale tobacco smoke, it's healthful for you. Wow. We know that's not true today. God's Word is transforming. God's Word is satisfying. God's Word is strengthening. It's enlightening. It's hopeful. And it's practically redeeming. Eric, God's Word changed your life. Let's end class by having you give your testimony of how God's Word incredibly changed your life. You're a student, University of Florida. What God's Word do for you? I was uh, raised in a Christian household, and by that I mean we went to church most Sundays, and that was about the extent of my Christian experience. But when I got to the University of Florida, I realized there were a lot of other faiths out there, and I wanted to find out what the answer really was, so I started studying the Bible. And what did, impact did that make on your life? Well, the first impact it made was that I realized what I had believed as a Christian was not what the Bible actually taught. And as I began to understand the three angels' messages and the gospel in the context of them, that's what really began to change my life. And that led you into evangelism, and what do you do today? I've been an evangelist for the past 12 years, traveled the world, and seen thousands of people come to Jesus Christ. And today I'm the director of NETS, the Northeast Evangelism Training School, and we are training individuals, lay people, ages 17 and up, to learn how to more effectively share their faith in the Word of God with others. How long is your course? The course is four months long. We have a spring semester and a fall semester. And how do I apply? You apply by going online to Nets Atlantic Union or talking to me, and I've got some brochures that I'll have at the back of the room. If I am interested in taking the principles that we've learned in class today and broadening them out, there may be somebody here that you're wondering what you're going to do January, February, March. I highly recommend Nets or one of our other training schools, they all work together. But if you are wondering over the next semester, you're not enrolled in school, what are you gonna do? See Eric, they've got a phenomenal training school that your mind will be boiled in the Word of God. Thanks so much. We can't go without singing one verse of a song. Lindsay, ancient words ever true, changing me and changing you. You know, how many of you know that ancient words ever true? Let's stand up, we're gonna sing it, then I'm gonna pray. If you, if you know it, sing it with Lindsay. 
Uh, Dylan, come on up as well. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.